Hey, as we get started, I just want to say a special thank you for, to Jason French for preaching for me last week. Um, I was gone for a few days with my family, visiting family for Thanksgiving, and I'm just thankful that he was able to do that. And I know many of you expressed to me how appreciative you are, were of his message. And I do have to make a confession to you. Um, it's always nice to be away for a few days, but I kind of miss you when I'm gone. It's a, it's a little weird to say that I know, but I, I do miss you when I'm gone. I was looking forward to being back with you today. And I think the reason I miss you so much is because this is a special place. Some of you know that, and you know it really well. This is a, a very special place. This is a special church, and, and I'm not just saying that because I'm the preacher here, okay? I, I'm saying that because it is true, and if this happens to be your very first time with us today, or maybe you've just been checking it out, or maybe you're watching online right now and you've been tracking with us for a while and thinking about maybe joining us in person, I want you to know that just how much we are thankful, grateful that you are here right now, and, and I hope that one day you will feel about this community of believers, like many of us do, of just how special it is. And I want to invite you to come be a part of what God is doing here at New Life. New Life has a long le legacy here in, in Northwest Arkansas. have been doing evangelistic ministry for over four decades here. And there are people who are in heaven right now who, who you won't meet to get there. You didn't even know they existed, but they are saved today because of the ministry of this church um, over the years, the faithful gospel ministry. And I believe with all of my heart that the best is still yet to come, my friends. The best is still out in front of us. Like, I can tell you, next year is going to be an exciting year. Early next year, we are breaking ground on the new campus out west, and that's going to be exciting. And let me tell you, um, if you don't know what I'm talking about, um, we were able to acquire a few years ago 15 acres right off the new bypass. And when I say right off the new bypass, I mean right off the new bypass. It's uh, located at the Highlands Boulevard exit, and we have 15 acres there, and we're going to be jumping into a multi-site ministry, one church, multiple locations, and that, is gonna, that building's going to go up next year. And I'll tell you, we're just scratching the surface of what God is doing evangelistically in Northwest Arkansas saw through our church family, and we'd love for you to be a part of it. So I invite you to come and join what God is doing here at New Life. Now, for the last 11 weeks, we have been in a series called Origins. We have been working our way through the book of Genesis. Now, when we started that, I knew that it was no small undertaking. Okay, nod your head if you're with me. There are 50 chapters in the book of Genesis. So it's going to take some time to go through it. I know guys that will start in the book of Genesis at Preachers, and they will preach through Genesis for several years. And I joked with you that it could take us several years to get through it. Now, I promise you we're not going to take several years to go through it. But I knew when we started that we would not be done by Christmas time. And we had intentionally planned to press pause on that series during the month of December so that we could, we could really focus in on the story of Jesus, the birth of Jesus, Christmas, what it's really all about. And let me tell you, did our worship team not get us into this Christmas season the right way? Let me tell you, was that not great? So you probably heard the, the brass instruments playing in the atrium. Listen, that doesn't happen every Sunday. If this is your first time and you think that's something we do every week, it's not. That was special for today. And I, I'm grateful the worship was great today. You probably noticed too all the decorations around the building. We hope it feels like Christmas. I walked in here this week and I looked up and I saw these ornaments hanging. And my first thought was, I hope that's not over the pulpit. Uh, because if one of these comes down, you're not walking away. Um, Anyway, that, our team did a great job. They just beautified the building. And, and I don't know, have any of you driven by the church after dark in the last week? If, if you haven't, 
You, I want to encourage you to, to take an evening after the sun goes down, drive by the church, and what you're going to see is the entire church is lit up beautifully for Christmas. All the trees in the parking lot are wrapped in colored lights, and it's just, it's just really beautiful. And we did that because we want people to be drawn to this place. We want them to, to sense the, in a, the, way, the Christmas spirit this year because we just love Christmas. And I, I so appreciate all the people involved in making our, our church look so, so beautiful. Out in the atrium, you're going to notice that there is a, a, a photo op opportunity for you and your family. Out there along the rock wall by the windows, there is a, a fireplace mantle that's been built. Some of you have asked me, is that permanent? No, it's not permanent. It's coming down in January. But, uh, but our team put that together so that you and your family, while you're here at New Life, sometime in the next couple of weeks, can gather your people together and take a photograph together. And, and we would love for you to post that on social media. We'd love for you to tag the church if you feel so inclined. You don't have to, but we'd love for you to do that. And uh, let people know where you go to church, and, and that would be awesome. But that's out there for you to just, for you, your family, take an awesome picture. There's a tree, there's a fireplace mantle out there. It's all decorated up. Um, come by the church some evening, look at the lights. Um, it's, it's, it's a wonderful time of year. All of that is leading us towards our Christmas Eve services. We are having six Christmas Eve services on Christmas Eve. Uh, there's going to be five in-person services and one online-only service, and I hope you'll participate with that. Finally, um, on the, the weekend of January 1st and January 2nd, we are having what's called Celebration Sunday. We do this every year. It usually either falls on the last weekend of the year or the very first weekend of the year. This year it happens to fall on the first weekend of the year. And we call it Celebration Sunday because that whole day is about celebrating God. I mean, we are celebrating all that he has done in the last 12 months. And, and friends, I'm going to tell you, there is so much to be thankful for in the last 12 months in this church family. And we're also going to spend that weekend celebrating all that God will do as we look off into the future 12 months. And, and I've already mentioned there's going to be a new building go up in, in, in early next year. That's plenty to celebrate, but there's even more than that, friends. And we're going to celebrate that together. So please be a part of one of our Christmas Eve services. Come to our celebration weekend. And then the weekend after that, January 8th and 9th, we're going to jump right back into our origin series and pick up right where we left off. So got an exciting month in front of us. And I hope you'll be a part of all of it. And let me just say this. I love Christmas, don't you? You know why I'm really looking forward to this Christmas even more than others? Because last Christmas... I spent it at home sick with COVID on Christmas Day. Can you imagine? Our, 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 uh, our Christmas Eve service had to go online only. My wife also had COVID on Christmas Day. Our son Brock also had COVID. We were super sick. And you know what we did on Christmas Day? We cooked a frozen pizza on Christmas Day. And we couldn't even smell it or taste it. And that's how bad it was. So we're all healthy again, and, and, and I hope your family's too, but we're, we're looking forward to this Christmas. We've got some family coming in town. We're going to have all the Christmas food that we missed out on last year. You know what I'm not looking forward to? I'm not looking forward to at all to much of the nonsense that comes with Christmas every time of year, this time of year. What I mean by nonsense is when the PC police show up in force and they tell us we got too much Christ in Christmas. You know, I'm, I, I'm, I'm not looking forward to that. And you'll probably hear some headlines over the next couple of weeks. Uh, parents threaten to sue the school board because there was too much religious message in their Christmas program or something like that. You, you'll hear about probably some department store that's going to get 
boycotted by some atheist group because they had the audacity to have a Christmas card on their sales rack instead of a season's greetings card. You know, you're going to hear all that kind of stuff. And I'm not looking forward to that. It comes around this time of year. It's almost to be expected. Um, I heard about one church member, not here, another church, who was, uh, come Christmas, he was so sick of the PC police showing up that uh, he decided to take matters into his own hands. He happened to be the guy in charge of the church sign. And this church had the marquee kind of sign where you put the little individual letters, you know, that was his job. And this is what he put. Top line, to all of our Christian friends, Merry Christmas. To the next line, To all of our Jewish friends, happy Hanukkah. And then the final line, and to our atheist friends, good luck. You know, it's like, (laughs) well, okay. All right. Um, So I don't think that sign stayed up long. I'm sure the, the elders jumped on that right away and said, take that down. But you know, I'm really thankful this year. You know why? Because we get to talk about Jesus. And we don't have to be ashamed about it. And we can talk about it openly. We can open up our Bibles. And I'm glad, at least for right now, we can still do that. And, and we, can, we can put Christ in Christmas because that's where he belongs, the true meaning of Christmas. And the reason we can do that and the reason that, um, that it's so natural to us is because the, the birth story of Jesus is the most recognizable story in all the world. And it is celebrated all over the globe, because it's the most known story in the world. My, my wife and I were uh, celebrating our 10th wedding anniversary, and we went on a cruise. You ever been on a cruise before? And we were on this cruise ship, um, it was about a week before Christmas. And as we were walking around the ship when we first got on there, um, I was blown away by how overtly their message of Christ and Christmas was. I mean, everywhere you look, there was a nativity scene. There was some kind of representation of Christ's birth. Um, They made no bones about it that Christmas was all about the birth of Christ. And there wasn't any secularized messaging in any of it. Everywhere you looked all over this cruise ship, it was Jesus, Jesus, Jesus during the holidays. And, and, And I remember being blown away by that. And I told Kirsten, my wife, look at how out there they are with the message of Jesus. And which is kind of a surprising thing to say. It must, you know, we, do, we are Americans where this kind of stuff likes to get shut down. But all over the world, it's celebrated. And then it dawned on me. It dawned on me why it was this way. Because if you've ever been on a cruise ship, you know that there are people from all over the world on a cruise ship. You want to hear the different languages of the world? Go on a cruise. The staff of most cruise ships aren't even Americans. And... All the other places in the world, many other places in the world, they all know the story of Jesus. And for the cruise ship to identify with his passengers, they had to put the message of Jesus out there. And I loved it. Because to to most other people in the world, to not connect Jesus to Christmas would be weird. But in America, for some reason, we try to take Christ out of Christmas. You know, the story of Jesus is very familiar to believers. And there's a temptation for us to let that familiarity um, with the, the birth narrative of Jesus to kind of approach the Christmas season and go, eh, I already know that story, and not read it again. Um, there's a temptation when we approach any familiar text in the Bible to just skip over it because I already know that. I, I want to encourage you, friends, if you ever get to a part of the Bible 
And, and the birth story of Jesus is a typical place for this. If you ever get to a part of the Bible where you go, I'm going to skip that page because I already know it. Don't do that. Because I believe sometimes our familiarity can be a curse at times because it's like, no, no, no. I, I think it's when we want to skip over something or just not pay that much attention to it. That's when we need to the most. Because I believe in those moments, that's when God is going to use that familiar text to teach you something brand new. So as we approach this Christmas season here at New Life, here's what we're going to do. We're going to approach this very familiar story, but we're going to take a very fresh look at it. That's my goal here. I want to take a very fresh look at the birth story of Jesus. I would like for us as a church to, in, in a sense, walk in the footsteps of those who were there. Starting with Mary in Nazareth when she received news that she was going to be the mother of the Christ child. All the way to the birth of Christ. We're going to take a look with fresh eyes at the people and the places and the circumstances surrounding Jesus' birth. And I believe that if we will do that, if we can walk in their footsteps, so to speak. The footsteps of Mary and Joseph and Zechariah and Elizabeth and, and the shepherds and, and others who got to visit Jesus in his, on his birth. I believe if we can do that, there's something about our own walk with Christ, our own spiritual journey that the Lord is going to show us that he desperately needs us to see. So we're going to examine the birth story of Jesus. And while we do that, over the next couple of weeks, we're going to ask some very important questions. And the first question is this, what does this story teach me about the character of God? We're going to look at the birth story of Jesus. We're going to ask that question. What does this true story about Jesus' birth teach me about the character of God? Here's another question. What does it tell us about the child that we celebrate? What do I learn about Jesus specifically from the details around his birth? And finally, what does this story mean to our lives today? There's going to be an application side of these questions that we're going to ask. There's something about the birth of Jesus that means something super significant to my life that will help me live for Jesus every single day. And we're going to try to pull out these truths from this narrative story. So if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and turn over to Luke chapter 1. And if you could also turn over to Matthew chapter 1. We're going to be bouncing back and forth between Luke and Matthew. And if you could kind of have those ready. That would be fantastic. We're going to start in Luke chapter 1, and if you could uh, find your way down to verse 26. Verse 26. Luke chapter 1, verse 26, and it just starts like this. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. So, 
The story of Jesus, the birth narrative of Jesus begins in a little town called Nazareth nine months before Jesus is actually born. Now, Nazareth was a nothing town back when Mary and Joseph lived there. And that's important for us to recognize because Nazareth is, is just as synonymous with the birth of Jesus as, as any other thing. But back then, it wasn't famous at all. It was just this little, teeny, nothing town. The Hebrew Talmud mentioned 63 villages throughout Galilee. Nazareth is not mentioned there. Josephus, one of the greatest historians, we learned so much about culture during the time uh, that Jesus lived. Josephus, he mentions uh, 45 villages throughout the area, and not a one of those is Nazareth. Why? It's because Nazareth was a tiny, poor, nothing town. It was not well known. If, if Nazareth was in Arkansas, it would be called Podunk, okay? It would be called Podunk, Arkansas. And it was estimated that the, the population of Nazareth, when Mary and Joseph lived there, was probably somewhere between 100 people to 400 people. We're not talking about a big place. Anybody grow up in a town that had less than 400 people in it? Yeah, a few of you. Yeah, it's just a small place. Now, I want to tell you about another little community that uh, we don't ever talk about when we're talking about the birth of Jesus. There was a city, a small city, about four miles away from Nazareth called Sepphoris. Now, if you have a Bible map in your Bible, you can probably find Sepphoris is much bigger than, than Nazareth. Uh, Nazareth was, but um, it was very, very well known. Probably the population, from the best they can tell, there was somewhere around 4,000 people who lived in Sepphoris. This is four miles away from Nazareth. So that is, that is a booming, happening community back in this day and age, 4,000 people. Um, it was known for its affluence. There were very nice homes there. Um, there, was, there was wealth there. I mean, a lot of nice was shopping. It was kind of a central hub. So you have Sepphoris, a happening place, and you have Nazareth, four miles away, not so much. Uh, they've done a lot of excavations archaeologically at Sepphoris, and they have unearthed and uncovered some of the best, most well-preserved mosaic floors in all of, Zira, all of Israel. It's, a, it's, a, it's, it's rich people floors is what it is. They've seen nice homes. I mean, this was the place. There's, there's all kinds of things written in history about how important Sepphoris was. So you have Sepphoris and you have Nazareth. Nazareth probably had a few farmers, some shepherds. Um, it's, not, it's not outside the realm to think that there were people that lived in Nazareth. The Bible doesn't say this, but culturally we, it had to be where they would walk from Nazareth the four miles to Sepphoris to find work to sell their goods, you know, the, the, these two communities. There was back and, back and forth there. So two towns right next to each other, one very affluent, that's Sepphoris. Nazareth, exactly the opposite, very low in status. Um, 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 most people there, evidence shows they probably lived in caves and very crude homes in Nazareth. It kind of makes sense when you understand the kind of place that Nazareth was. Uh, it kind of makes sense why Nathaniel would question Philip when Philip tells him, we found Jesus, the one that, that Moses was talking about. We found that guy. And in, in John chapter 1, verse 44 and 45, it says, Philip found Nathaniel and told him, we found the one Moses wrote about in the law and whom the prophets wrote about, Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph. And what was said? Nazareth. Can anything good come from there? That's Nazareth. It's, it's, it's looked down upon. And so there's this question that, 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 that pops up as we're talking about the birth of Jesus Christ. 
Why would God choose this town of all the places in the area? Why would God choose this town to find a young woman to bear the Christ child? Why would he do that? Why would God choose this village, which is looked down upon by a lot of people? Could anything good come from Nazareth? Why would God choose there? What does it tell us about God? That this story doesn't take place in Sepphoris, when all, all the activity and the money is in Sepphoris. What does it tell us? That the story of Jesus doesn't start in the luxury villas and the nice mosaic floors and, 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 and prosperity. What does it tell us about Jesus? That instead, it was Nazareth among the working class, the poor, and those who lived in caves. To me, the very setting of the story tells us that God looks for the meek and the humble to use for his greatest purposes and it continues God's trend that we see starting in the book of Genesis all the way through it that God uses the least likely of people from the least likely of places to fulfill his purposes. A couple years ago, I, I went to visit a friend of mine who lives in Honduras. He's a missionary down there, and, and he works in some of the poorest areas of Honduras you'll ever, ever step foot in. Uh, I flew into Tegucigalpa. He met me there, and uh, Tegucigalpa is the big city there in Honduras. There is some affluence. Overall, Honduras is a pretty poor country, but, but there's some affluence in affluent neighborhoods in Tegucigalpa. And, uh, and we drove out of the city, and, and we went to these out of nowhere kind of places. I mean, some of these places we went, they don't even show up on a map. We went to this one community called La Fortunita, and, um, and there's no electricity there. There's no running water. Um, very crude homes. Um, you step into one of the homes, it's a dirt floor, and you've got mangy dogs and chickens running through. The, you know, it's, it's one of those kind of places. A lot of good work for Jesus happened there, by the way. I think, I, I had the thought at the time, and I, I have a thought, the same thought today as I am going through this text again, that if God were to announce that a king is to be born from Honduras, most people would go, oh, yeah, in Tegucigalpa. Yeah, probably one of the wealthy neighborhoods there. That's where the king's to be born. But no, I think if God were to announce the king would be born, I think it would be from a place like La Fortunita. Not on the map. Look down upon, look down upon, the people are looked down upon, because that's the way that, that God works. That's how he did in Nazareth. It's, it's not the place that you'd expect the Savior of the world to be born. And isn't it just like God, though? I mean, doesn't the Scripture tell us that that's how God is like? 1 Corinthians 1.27, what does this tell us about God? But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. In other words, God doesn't think like a lost person. God doesn't think like we think. So he uses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chooses the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chooses the lowly things of the world to, to, um, and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. So Jesus, the king, is going to come from Nazareth. And that means something in the whole narrative of Jesus' life. So in Nazareth, you have this woman named Mary. She's just a young girl at the time, and she is pledged to be married to a guy named Joseph. And on this particular day that we just read about, out of nowhere, the angel Gabriel, he appears to her, and, and he announces that she is highly favored in God's eyes. 
And that she is going to give birth to a son. He tells her his name will be Jesus. He lets her know that Jesus will be great. He will be the son of the most high. Uh, His kingdom will never come to an end. And he's going to be called the son of God. Can you agree with me? That's a lot to take in in one day. That is a lot of information to take in. Um, Don't forget that Mary is referred to a young virgin. In Judaism, being referred to as a young virgin is probably a reference to somebody who is 12, 13, or 14 years of age. Mary's just a young girl. She's probably very uneducated coming from Nazareth, coming from a poor family. We don't know this for sure. Culturally, again, it makes sense. It would make sense that Mary and perhaps her mom would walk every day to Sepphoris four miles away and they would sweep floors or clean house or do something for a wealthy family in Sepphoris and then walk home or they would make something. It has been, you know, it has been speculated. Joseph was a carpenter and and literally he worked with his hands and there's all kinds of 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 work that he could do. Many have argued that Joseph probably was very familiar with Sepphoris. He probably got called upon quite often to do work and probably helped build that city. It makes sense culturally. So you have Mary, but but she's this young kid, probably uneducated, comes from a poor family, and she's 13 or 14 years old. And it was not uncommon back then for a 13 or 14-year-old girl to be pledged to be married or be married. And we find that so strange today, don't we? I mean, and, and we even live in Arkansas and still find that strange. Um, this is, you know, just check and see if you're with me. Sounds like you are. Okay. So Mary is engaged to Joseph, and on this particular day, her entire world gets flipped upside down, doesn't it? And how does she respond to her world getting flipped upside down? How does she respond to that? She just found out that she's going to be pregnant outside of marriage. And most of the time, that's not good news. She's engaged to be married. And you know she's wondering, how is my soon-to-be husband going to react to this? Will he even want to be with her after he finds out about this? Will he even believe that she has still been faithful to him and that all of this is from God? She's probably wondering, will my family still accept me after this, will they want to abandon me? Let's remember, she is from a small town. I'm confident Nazareth is just like every other small town. Everybody's up in everyone else's business. And so she's probably wondering, will they even want me to be here anymore? Her world absolutely just got rocked. And how does she respond? Well, verse 38, what's she say? I'm the Lord's servant. She's 13. 12 maybe, 14? I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. That was her answer. And I believe that her answer to this angel is the very reason for why the angel told her, you have found favor in God's eyes. Because check out that answer. I am the Lord's servant. And I believe that there is a real lesson that we can take away from this. When Mary said it, I don't think she had an ounce of thought that for generations to come, people are going to analyze her words. But man, what a lesson that she leave us here today. That when her world got flipped upside down, when her emotions got rocked to the core, she responded to God in humility. And what a great example. Her answer um, means even more to me in the sense that when I realized she didn't have a whole lot of information to go off of either. If you think about it, when the angel left her, I would assume that she had a million questions that she didn't have any information for. 
but her attitude didn't change. I am your servant. Now, it begs me to ask this question of all of us here today. What is happening right now in your life, friends? What right now is going in, on in your life that you have more questions than answers about right now? I've, has your world in the last few months and last year, has it been flipped upside down? Have you been taken off of your feet? Has your world absolutely been, been rocked? And if it hasn't, trust me, you live long enough, you're going to experience that at some point in your life. And the question that we got to ask is, how do we respond to life when it gets rocked? Is it going to be like Mary? I am your servant. Have you guys seen the movie Soul Surfer? Does that movie mean anything to you? It's the true life story of Bethany Hamilton. Maybe that'll help you. Um, she was a little girl, probably about the same age as Mary, 13 or so, and she wanted to be a professional surfer, and her, her, uh, her family lived in Hawaii, and she was out surfing one day with friends, and she got attacked by a shark. Is it coming back to you now? And the shark took her arm off, and she almost died. Uh, she lost almost 60% of her blood in her body, but they saved her, and, and her life has turned into this incredible testimony for God. And I was, I was listening to her give an interview um, not long after this shark attack happened. Listen to the words of this young girl, Bethany. When her world got rocked, flipped upside down, when she absolutely got knocked off her feet and everything changed in an instant. Listen to what she says. I, I'm going to quote her. I wrote it down when I heard her say it. She said, what has seemed like a horrible thing, God has brought glory to himself through me. I have tried to be a good light to people and share his love. What an amazing answer. Bethany reminds me of Mary in Luke chapter 1. How do you respond when your life gets rocked? Mary gives us an example. How did Joseph take this same news? Eh, not so well, to be honest with you. He didn't take it as good as Mary. Flip over to Matthew uh, chapter 1. Go back two books of the Bible and Matthew chapter 1. Let's uh, quickly look at how Joseph handled the same information, all right? It says in uh, verse 18 of chapter 1, this is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and did not want to expose her to public disgrace. He had in mind to divorce her quietly. So by all indications, Joseph didn't take the news as well as Mary did, and he made a decision that I'm going to get out of this engagement and I'm going to divorce her. And this, this actually um, proposes a, a good question that maybe you have it. If they're not married, why does he need to divorce her? Anybody wondering what, like the language here can be a little bit confusing. This is where understanding a little bit about culture back then helps us with understanding what's being written here. Um, being pledged to somebody um, in this day and age took about a year. It was about a year long, a pledge. And, and the pledge is the same thing as what we would call an engagement today. The only difference is back then a pledge was legally binding back then. So if you're engaged to somebody, you say, I don't want to go through with this and I don't want to get married. You break it off and you, 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 you move on with life. But back then it wasn't that simple. It was like a legally binding contract to be pledged to somebody. So if you wanted out of it, it was the same as divorce. If you were with somebody else during your season of pledge, 
then it was considered a full-on affair, and, and, um, and, and, and you had to legally divorce. So this is the situation that Joseph and Mary, they are legally pledged to one another. They haven't consummated the relationship. They're not under one roof at all, but they are pledged to one another, and Joseph, I, you know what? I can't handle this. I, I, I just can't, I can't fathom, I can't deal with this. What you're telling me, Mary, there is no reason in the world why Joseph should believe her, right? This is a crazy story. You're telling me that, that the, the baby inside of you is not mine, but it's God's? I'm out. I'm out. But then this happened. Look at verse 20. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife, but he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. So in other words... After Joseph has this encounter with this angel, he is a changed man. He calls off the divorce, and he's like, I'm going to accept this role that God has for me. And, and Joseph and Mary would go on to become the earthly parents of Jesus. I, I've heard of Joseph referred this way before. Maybe you have too. But he is often referred to as the silent hero of faith in the Bible. The silent hero of faith. You know why we call him the silent hero of faith? It's because throughout the entire New Testament, we don't have one recorded word of Joseph. He has no speaking parts in Jesus' story. But his actions tell us more than what he could probably ever say with his mouth. His action. That's why he's the silent hero. He received the message from God and he's like, okay, I'll do it. He woke up and he did, verse 24, what the angel had commanded him. And I wonder how many of us in this room right now have that kind of resolve when it comes to our faith in the Lord. When it comes to our Christian walk, do we have that kind of resolve? Okay, I'll obey. And what I mean by that is, I don't know if God visits people in dreams and visions so much like he did back then, but I'll tell you what we do have. We have God's word, and we can open it up anytime that we want, and, and we can read it, and we can get the same message, and we know what God wants us to do. And do we read God's word, and we close the Bible and say, I'll go do it. I will live this way. I will live the kind of life that the Bible tells me to live and they have that kind of resolve. It would be the same kind of resolve as Joseph. The angel said, Joseph, you're gonna do this. We read the Bible, this is how we're to live. All right, I'll do it. How is your resolve? Joseph's silent hero of faith because he obeyed. How's yours? Well, there's a lot of application we could take in these few verses and, and as we unpack this more, as we get into other people in this story and other circumstances. We're going to pull more application, but there's two things I want to share with you, and, and then we're going to be done today. The first thing I want you to go home with and understand is this. Nothing is impossible with God. Nothing. Mary asked this very logical question when the angel visited her. She said, how in the world am I going to have a baby when I know that I have never put myself in a situation where this is remotely possible? How is this going to happen? And what did the angel tell her in verse 36 of Luke chapter 1? He said, nothing is impossible with God. Nothing. Now, I want to look back to Genesis for just a moment. 
because this same understanding about God is found in the book of Genesis as well. When we come back together in January and, and re-engage with the origin series, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 18. And in Genesis chapter 18, um, it begins by Abraham receiving three visitors to his tent. One of them is God, the other two are angels. And as they're talking, um, the angel says to Abraham, this time next year, I'll be back and your wife will have a son. So Sarah is 89 years old and she's never had a kid before. And the Bible tells that Sarah was in the other room and she overheard them talking. And it says that she laughed to herself at this ridiculous idea that at 89, she's going to be a mom. And God hears that. And he turns to Abraham and says, why did Sarah laugh when this news came about? And she's in the other room, I didn't laugh. And God's like, yes, you did. And then the angel says this, is anything too hard for the Lord? Now think about these two moments in scripture. You have a situation where you have Abraham who's 99, his wife is 89, and, and God's like, I'm gonna give you a baby even though your window is closed because nothing is impossible with God. And now you have all these years later, you have Mary who's 12, 13, 14. She goes, how am I gonna have a kid? I've never put myself in that situation. Nothing, it's too hard for God. Do you understand something about God today? Nothing is impossible when it comes to God. And I want to encourage you today with this same message that nothing's impossible. And you may find yourself in a situation, like I said, where you've got more questions than you've got answers. You might be looking down the barrel of something that's like, that is an impossible situation. There's no avoiding this. And I can't do anything about it. And I want you to know there's nothing that's impossible with God. He said, there's no way that anything is ever going to be good come from this. It's too far gone. That person's too far gone. Friends, nothing is impossible with God. And you've got to believe that when you come to the birth story of Jesus because it's all over the pages. If God can give an 89-year-old woman a baby miraculously and he can give a 12-year-old girl who's never with a man a baby, nothing is impossible with God. And I believe there's some of you in here that needed that reminder so bad, so bad today. Second piece of application that I pull from just these first few verses we read together is this. Friends, we have to keep our trust in God even when our world gets flipped upside down. Absolutely. Joseph and Mary in this story, their world absolutely just gets, it gets rocked, doesn't it? Some of your world's been rocked. I, I, I am, I'm blown away by what some families in our church are going through right now. You want to talk about getting your world rocked. There's some folks in our church, you should be praying for people you don't even know in our church family because there's some folks dealing with some stuff. And there's some of you here today that will be dealing with some stuff that's not even on your radar right now. So how are you going to respond when your world gets rocked? Well, let's be like Mary. I am your servant. That's the answer. Because there were things happening in Mary's life that she couldn't see, things that God was doing. She could not see that this Jesus would become everything that he was going to become just yet. She had to go through some, some tough days. Friends, there's things happening in your world that you cannot see. God is up to some things you don't know anything about. So what's your response? I am the Lord's servant. We tend to be more like Joseph. I'm out. It's too hard. And we need to come back to the mentality that, you know what, God's got this. God's got this. 
Friends, when your life gets flipped upside down, there's only one way to respond, and that is, I'm the Lord's servant. Lord, do with me whatever you want. I am going to be faithful to you. I don't care what happens to me. Lord, this is, this is about you. It's more about you than me, and I'm just going to be faithful. I'm going to walk with you. That's what you called me to be. And friends, I promise you, he'll bless the heck out of you with that. His purpose will be fulfilled. How do you respond? Well, I'm really looking forward to unpacking this with fresh eyes with you, and I hope that you're walking out of here learning a few new things, encouraged by God's Word. And as you look out the next week, I believe that God's going to bring something from our text up and it's going to help you this week. I do believe that. Let me pray for you before you go. Dear Lord, I just thank you so much for your Word as always. I thank you, Lord, that this true story of Jesus is just as relevant today as it ever was. And Lord, as we enter this Christmas season with so many distractions and so many things that are vying for our attention, Lord, help bring us back to the real meaning of Christmas. It's about what you were doing for the world, that you were sending yourself, how you stepped out of heaven and you walked on this earth, Lord, and 33 years later, you gave your life for the sins of the world. Lord, you truly came to die so that we could live, and we're thankful for it. Lord, as we unpack the circumstances surrounding the coming of your, of your son Jesus and the lives and those impacted and the places and all of that, Lord, help us to fully understand with fresh eyes exactly, in a deep way, what all this means. I pray, Lord, you help us walk out of here every weekend more determined to live for you, more dedicated to the things that you're about, Lord more on fire for you than we've ever been before. Lord, our prayer, our prayer, Lord, is that you just use us. May, may our answer to all things in life just be this. I am your servant. And whatever you want from me, God, I'll do it because I trust you. And I believe you're involved with bigger things than me. And all of it is gonna come together for your good. So I trust you, Lord. Help us to be like that, Lord. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen.